Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everybody. It's Mike Norman, and welcome to my podcast. I'm very excited today. I have a guest who I'm very happy she was able to join me here on the podcast. Many of you probably know her. She has written a number of books, one uh, Web of Debt and Public Bank Solution. Her name is Ellen Brown. She's the founder, actually, of the Public Banking Institute uh, and author of a number of books, as I mentioned, um, has been prolific in her writing and speaking out against the uh, predatory financial sector, the sort of upside-down monetary system that we have in place, not really only here in our country, but pretty much all over the world, uh, where we have ceded uh, monetary authority basically over to the private banking sector. Uh, so I'd like to bring her on right now. Ellen, thank you very much for joining on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. I mean, I, I think I uh, started uh, following you probably about five years ago. I saw some of your articles online, and, of course, you know, I was, I was taken aback. I was shocked a bit because, obviously, the sort of stuff that you talk about or that I talk about, uh, it, you don't find it that much, uh, you know, out there. Uh, on the web, or certainly not in the mainstream media, uh, but it was a fantastic, I think, uh, tearing down or, or expose of the true nature of our monetary system. And, and alongside that, you know, you were very um, um, strong about offering a different method, about saying, look, you know, we've ceded uh, control of our financial system really over to a private banking system that should, in reality, operate in the public interest, uh, the public purpose, but doesn't. But we can do this, not, not only through uh, public banks, but also with the understanding that our government, you know, is the sovereign issuer of our money, uh, and it's kind of uh, silly to have this uh, structure where, you know, only a tiny fraction of the people's money really goes into the economy for, you know, the needed investments and spending that would create uh, a very egalitarian and prosperous society. Instead, we've handed it over to uh, a, a very, very unwieldy and rapacious financial sector uh, which has basically gone out of control. We've seen that, you know, in the past seven, eight years. And they've amassed so much power, like I said, not just here in the United States, but worldwide. So tell me, first of all, I know, I know you're an attorney uh, by education and, and uh, you practice law. What brought you into the area of, um, you know, banking and finance? Well, first I'll say that was an excellent summary. That's exactly what what I think and what's wrong. Um, well, I'm I'm a lawyer by trade. My uh, ex-husband burned out on Beverly Hills Law, and we went into the Foreign Service, which gave me a chance to write. 
So I, I actually wrote 10 books on health and the politics of health. And the more I got into it, and alternative remedies, and the more I got into it, I could see that our our medical system was corrupted by the drug, big, you know, big pharma, big drug big business, pharma. and that they were actually part of this whole corporate, big corporate control, and that where they got their power was through the power to create money. I mean, they're all the the big banks and the big drug companies, and that they're all interconnected. And that if we wanted to fix the system, that we really had to fix the banking system. And so that really intrigued me. I'd actually investigated the banking system before and tried to write on it, but it was before the Internet. And you couldn't really get to the end of your query. You know, you'd go to the library and drag these heavy books around and try to Xerox them, and they wouldn't have the material you needed or, you know, you just couldn't follow your thought process to the end. But after, when I came back to the U.S. after 2000, then suddenly there was all this material here and, uh, and, but I still didn't have a hook until I discovered that The Wizard of Oz was written as a, as a monetary allegory in the 1890s. So that gave me um, a unique, you know, angle, (laughs) something to make it more interesting. So I wrote the Web of Debt. I started it out, um, and it was basically on where money comes from and how we've been uh, diluted or how nobody really knows where it comes from. We haven't been taught this in school. So this was, I wanted to show, trace the the evolution of our U.S. banking system and money system and how we got here from there. And um, I started out my first introduction. I said, uh, this this um, subject has been made much too complicated. I am going to do it in 50 pages. <laughs> of course, I did it in 500 pages, and it took me six years to write. So it was it was not that easy as I thought when I started out. But anyway, um, it was very interesting. That's why it got to be so long, because one thing would lead to another. You go, ooh, that's interesting, and then that would open up yet more great material and then your chapter would be too long and so then it would kind of like amoebas you know it forms another chapter and another chapter so i i um, enjoyed myself writing that because i had the luxury of not you know i was hiding in my room and just writing and researching and then um after so that was published in 2007 and then we had the bank crisis in 2008 which i actually predicted in web of debt i mean not that it was my great insight it was just <clears throat> the people that i was citing predicted it but it, it looked kind of like i was prescient because i said that's where we were going and uh, and then after the 2008 crisis i knew that there was one state that owned its own bank that was north dakota so i was watching it and uh, there at first there were four states that stayed in the black and then there were two and then there was one um North Dakota so I I was quite sure it was because of their bank their state owned bank so I started writing about it and giving um you know presentations and then I got a huge amount of people wrote to me and I couldn't answer all the emails so um, I set up a Google group so they could talk to each other and I wouldn't have to answer. Um, and then we, so that generated a lot of interest. So for several years, we went round and round and just sort of nailed down all these issues. And then we felt like we were the experts. And instead of talking about it, we should get out there and do something. So we formed the Public Banking Institute. And uh, then we, there were 20 states that had bills 
for state-owned banks, um, but we still haven't actually gotten a state-owned bank. The one that got the farthest was California. I'm from California, uh, where we had a bill that passed both houses of the legislature, but Jerry Brown didn't sign it. He said that um, we could do it in-house. We didn't need another committee. It was a it was a bill for a blue ribbon committee to look into the feasibility of setting up a state-owned bank, but they never did it. So it's still just kind of hanging there, like we could look into it with our banking committee, but they never looked into it. So, so we're tra- we're trying to work on him now. <laughs> yeah, and and good luck on that. Um, but Brown is uh, he would definitely fall, you know, on the side of of the progressive there. So I, I guess you have more luck uh, in that happening than in some other states. But let let's backtrack a little bit. And because, you know, you you talked about the financial crash, and we could even go back much further into banking history. I mean, there's a long history, you know, of uh, banks, uh, private institutions, money lenders from the the Rothschilds, you know, in the 14th century to the the goldsmiths of England in the the 16th and 17th century and credit money. Uh, But then if you look at more recent history in the United States, if you go back even to the the 60s and the uh, early 1970s, I remember being at a presentation here in New York City where Paul Volcker spoke. I I believe it was in, it might have been in 2007 or 2008, I don't remember. He gave this keynote speech at an economics conference here in New York. And he talked about, you know, how back in uh, 1972, you know, the United States, we, with a population of 200 million people, uh, we built 2.5 million homes. Banks, you know, they were plain vanilla banks. They would uh, make the, the loans. They would hold the mortgages. They would service the mortgages. They would know their customers. And then fast forward basically to 2007, you know, we built 2.5 million homes. But now we injected, and by the way, with a 300 million population, so the population, the, ostensibly the demand went way up. We only built the same amount of homes, but what changed was an enormous amount of risk and volatility got built into that system. You know, there was the securitization. There was the, pa- the, selling, uh, the packaging and the selling of the loans off. There were derivatives traded against these things, you know, umpteen uh, uh, times. Um, So what did we really accomplish? You know, basically what he was saying was what was really accomplished? We we did the same thing in real terms, building the same number of houses. Actually, it was worse because we had a bigger population, but we injected all this volatility. Then we had the crash. It should have been obvious, and I think it was obvious to most people, even, you know, the the common layman out there who's not a financial person or not a a lawyer, that something needed to change, and, in fact, it went right back to the same system, even intensified, I would say now, as compared to, you know, more power concentrated in fewer hands. What happened? Why did that happen? Well, it depends on how conspiratorial you want to get, but you could make an argument, I've actually made this argument, that, um, that all the way from 2001 that, that the cards were stacking in this direction in 2008 after the financial crisis. Of course, we we chose to bail out the banks. I mean, they they could have let the banks 
um, well, big banks you can't let them, you can't just sell them off for for parts like you do with in an ordinary bankruptcy, but you can nationalize them, and that's actually what they probably should have done. That's what they did with um, the Continental Illinois, which was the I think the fourth largest bank in the country when it went bankrupt. They nationalized it for a few years, took it over, but instead they bailed out the banks um, and. It wasn't even just, theoretically it was Congress, but it was really the Federal Reserve that bailed out the banks. And originally they said, no, they couldn't. Do, the Fed said, no, we can't do that. It's not in our mandate. Well, and then after Congress agreed to the whole thing, then two weeks later the Fed said, you know, new new rules. <laughs> we decided we can do it. And so they suddenly came up with a $16 trillion worth or more I think it was credit. like I- the final number was something like in the order of 23 or 26 trillion. Yeah. So, so they obviously have the credit to they they can pretty much do what they want. And you could argue that it has to be the Fed because Congress is so deadlocked, they don't do anything. So, and the Fed is like supposedly an independent central bank. So, but our argument would be even giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're that they're running on bad theory and that, uh, you know, they obviously it's not working, or I would say it's obvious it's not working what they're doing. They're, they're trying to over-regulate the banks, when, which only hurts the little banks because, and they weren't the ones that caused the problem. And what did cause the problem was derivative speculation. I mean, it was the repeal of Glass-Steagall that really, um, caused the problem, and that was necessary because our whole banking system, apparently, uh, it was considered necessary because the banks were losing market share to all these things like General Motors um, suddenly financing their own cars. And, and In other words, the, the regular banking business wasn't making enough money, so that in order to supposedly be competitive with European banks, um, Alan Greenspan said, oh, yeah, we need this derivatives business, and we need to um, get rid of Glass-Steagall. Yeah, so he was, suddenly, uh, that was that. Uh, that, uh, that was the uh, Greenspan, Summers, Rubin triumvirate, uh, and the story of uh, Brooksley Bourne, who was at right. the CFTC at the time, who said, you know, we ought not be doing this, and, you know, she got she got completely railroaded by saying that. I mean, they they just totally went around her, but she was waving the warning flags back in 1998 about uh, deregulating the derivatives, and, and who Alan Grandspan was a big proponent of that. And then, you know, suddenly after this debacle in 2008, you know, he goes and he testifies that, gee, you know, I don't know what went wrong. I don't know what went wrong. You know, they, uh, I, I thought they would act in their own best interests and not get into this stuff. Gee, I guess I was wrong. But after all that carnage, and uh, all the damage was done. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Paulson, at the time, if you recall, you know, he was the one who lobbied very strongly in favor of the $700 billion and the TARP, and, and that was another, you know, huge bailout of the banks. Uh, nothing approaching what the Fed did. But, I mean, you basically, uh, the Fed could have kept the liquidity going there. You know, one of the best stories I remember from that whole time was the failure of Wachovia, which eventually got taken over by Wells Fargo, and um, uh, what what was the name of our, uh, of the um, 
FDIC, Sheila, Sheila Bear, right? Uh, she made a statement at the time that Wachovia uh, did not fail due to solvency issues. So, I mean, why did it fail? Isn't that the one of the sole reasons you created a central bank was to preclude bank runs and you essentially let it fail because it had a bank run if it was not a solvency issue? I thought that was just unbelievable at the time. Really crazy. Well, if it's not solvency, then it's liquidity, and that's what the central bank is supposed to do, right, is come up with the liquidity. But it seems to me <laughs> that the very fact that you need a central bank for liquidity proves that your whole your whole banking model is bad. I mean, what what you're talking about is banks that are lending short or borrowing short and lending long, and then they cover by borrowing from each other. And then if they don't if they don't have it from each other, then they go to the central bank. But it's a huge fraud, and then the well, and then the the central bank steps in and and covers. In the 19th century, you had bank runs every six years, I think I read on average. Yeah. Um, so so then they came up with the Federal Reserve as this big backstop, but it still didn't work until because then you had the 1929 crash. It didn't work till the the dollar went off the gold standard. I right. They were on the gold. Yeah. They were on the gold standard, which uh, limited, uh, constrained the ability really of the Fed to do that. But uh, if you look back at that period, the countries that left the gold standard emerged from the depression. We were one of the last, the United States. I mean, uh, to get off the gold standard, uh, Roosevelt did it in '33. But you know. The other countries did it before us, and they, their economies almost immediately uh, started to improve. Um, the, the thing is, though, and I think this is what you uh, basically, when you're advocating for public banking, it's the, uh, the understanding that it's our money, right? Whether you're talking about the federal government and its ability to, to coin and, and print money, or a bank that is like a, a public bank, it's our money. Now, um, here's what detractors would say to that. They would say, oh, great, that's a wonderful idea. So instead of having, uh, you know, private banks determine, uh, you know, the, the, the rate or magnitude of money creation and where it will be distributed into the economy, you're basically advocating, I'm playing the devil's advocate, you're basically advocating to give that over, you know, to politicians and let them decide, oh, yeah, that's going to work out really well. What do you say to that? Well, we have only have one model. That's the Bank of North Dakota, and they do not hand it over to politicians. If you talk to the Bank of North Dakota people, they, are, they will say, we are not politicians, and we are not a development agency, or we are not here to fund businesses that can't, get loans any other way any other way you know in other words bankrupt businesses that they what they really are is a wholesale bank for for their local bank so the local bank goes out finds a customer um negotiates the loan um sort of acts as a front office and then the bank bank of north dakota just comes in and helps with liquidity and helps with capitalization in fact they don't need capital because they guarantee the loan so it is not at all a matter of politicians using the bank for their own purposes. The, the Bank of North Dakota doesn't doesn't listen to their, or you know, they're not. They are independent from their politicians. 
and, you know, and you have always, or, sorry, go ahead. You know, ordinary banks uh, right now are control of, in control of the money spigots, and they decide who gets the credit, and they can make a lot more money giving the credit to, let's say, making a billion-dollar loan to a hedge fund probably takes the same paperwork as making a $10,000 loan to a to a community business that's trying to get going. So, of course, they're going to ignore those little community businesses, but a public bank has a mandate to serve the public interest rather than to their they're not attempting to make profits for their shareholders. But funnily enough, there was a an article came out in the Wall Street Journal last uh, November that said that the Bank of North Dakota is actually more profitable than J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs. How do they do that? It's because their model is way more efficient. They, you know, they, uh, I have a great, and, and you know, I'm, I'm chuckling when you say that, but it's only because, uh, you know, I have another great example of that, and I think an example that shows how uh, the, the big commercial banks are completely useless and how the banking model is completely useless. If you look at the Fed, and I, I know you're not a big fan of the Fed, but let me just make this comparison. The Fed is basically a bank. The Fed owns assets. Its assets are primarily U.S. Treasury securities. It buys those. It holds it. It makes a return on that. Uh, the, the Fed earned $100 billion on that, those investments. In the last year, that's what it turned over to the Treasury. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet is about $4 trillion, all right? In contrast, so it, it made, um, what, um, on that amount of money, $100 billion, it made about a 2.5% return, okay? Now, J.P. Morgan Chase, run by Jamie Dimon, they have about $2.5 trillion in assets, okay? On those assets, they uh, had a return of 0.7%, okay? <laughs> so a third of what the Fed earned, basically doing the same thing, holding assets. But Jamie Dimon gets paid $20 million a year, and the chairman of the Fed gets paid $190,000. That shows you how ridiculous, and not just ridiculous, how it is a model that is designed to funnel wealth up to a very few number of people. That's it. That's all it's there for. Nobody got loans. You know, the government made most of the student loans in the last seven years. The government made most of the mortgage loans or all of the mortgage loans through Fannie and Freddie in the last seven years. What have they done? The banks have earned money solely on the fact that we, the people, have been paying interest on our own money, which we give them to hold, you know, as reserves. It's an insane model. Insane. Yep. Sorry, I'm just writing that down. That was a good point. Um, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, the, so... So J.P. Morgan, that 0.7%, that's what the shareholders get. So they're obviously not there to serve the shareholders there either. They're there, like you say, to serve the the executives. And, yes, Jamie Diamond and his cronies. Yeah. And, and you, here's yeah. the other thing, Ellen, that I find so uh, so just like comical. You know, this guy will go, he'll be summoned before Congress to give some testimony, and, and like they're just like, 
you know, kissing the very ground that he walks on. Like he, he is, you know, when it comes to, he's like the god of god of CEOs. You know, supposedly uh, he has a he has a direct line to the Oval Office. I mean, for what? I mean, what? You know, seriously. It's because of what? campaign contributions. It's not because they're they have great insights that nobody else has. Now, here's the other thing, though, Ellen. I think uh, most people, you know, people have been manipulated. I'm talking about the general public, the citizenry, okay? Because this stuff should just be common sense. But people have been propagandized and manipulated to such a degree that, you know, they they worship on the altar of the the private sector, which this term, every time I hear it, it, it makes me go crazy because it is totally phony and totally fictitious, you know. But the, the people, the population in general, they buy it and they resist the very sort of change that you're advocating right now. That's the problem. How do you turn around the opinion of 300 million people, or, or the vast majority of them anyway. I mean, it's it, that's like almost an impossible task. Well, it does seem impossible, but we've got the Internet, which is something we never had before. So uh, most people get their news from TV, and that's that's pretty hard to break through. And, of course, the TV, the, the um, mass media are owned by six big corporations, which... Uh, all uh, they control the news and they they make form public opinion, but it does seem to me that that we're filtering up. I mean, more and more people are becoming aware of where money comes from and that there's something wrong. Well, just the fact that people have lost their homes or their student loans or something that they can't possibly pay off is enough to wake people up that there's something wrong with the system. So I think we are getting more and more people of the 99% aware of the pro- that there is a problem. And I think one reason that we haven't been able to push forward with a solution is that we're still sort of hammering out the solution. I mean, you still have, among money reformers, there's still disagreement on exactly what approach we should take. But it seems to me that our, our brains are becoming more and more connected with this Internet so that as as we become sort of a united force, Hopefully we will prevail. I, I say we, but you know what I mean. That hopefully we can change the system into something yeah. that's functional. If you look at my daughter's heavily into biomimicry, where they study natural systems. Uh, if you look at how bacteria evolved, or or ants or termites, they start out as single-celled organisms that are all competing with each other, but eventually they become a superorganism where they actually communicate with each other and reach uh, homeostasis. In other words, they sort of feed each other instead of what we have right now is a parasitic system that feeds off the the masses. But what we need is one where we all sustain each other. It's pretty brilliant, too, because it's it's a brilliantly executed divide-and-conquer strategy uh, that's being employed, and, and you know, well, listen, uh, you sound optimistic. I'm, I'm not quite as sanguine as you are. Uh, I don't know, but uh, maybe you're right. Maybe you know, slowly but surely. I just, it's hard to see how the power structure will, you know, like now, it, 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 voting to me is a waste of time. I don't vote. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, the, the owners of, of the system, you know, they're going to end up getting what they want. What's the point? It's a charade. To me, it just seems like a charade. So even if people did vote their interest, I mean, look, Obama ran as a progressive, you know, the first time he ran, and everybody thought that we, we were going to get, uh, you know, change. And we just went right back to uh, the status quo, in fact, probably more acutely in the direction, you know, the bad direction, uh, than what we than than what was the case before, but um, I want to get into a little bit. I know you wrote a recent uh, article about the uh, about water and how water is going to be you know the next major. I mean that is clearly the most important uh, asset uh, on the planet. I mean without water people die. I mean civilizations, communities, cities can die. You're out there in California. They're going through an epic drought. Well, you wrote California Water Wars, another form of asset stripping. I want to just focus a little bit about that on that term asset stripping because, as you know, over the past you know thirty plus years, the neoliberal model, you know, this privatization, this deregulation, uh, this, this this whole doctrine, which to me, you know, really is just a front for theft. It is for wholesale app, uh, asset stripping, you know, austerity, uh, this phony need, you know, to balance budgets, which forces communities and uh, public wealth to be sold off at fire sale prices where you get big corporate interests or the financial sector or billionaires coming in and buying things that we the people have built and paid for 20 times over, and now we're getting charged for it and impoverished. And then, you know, we're having this national conversation about income and wealth inequality when it's as obvious as, you know, the nose on your face, or it should be, about what is going on. I mean, it's not some, you know, by, by, by the consequence of, of uh, some group of society, some sector, some cohort being more productive. It's outright theft. It's outright state-sanctioned theft, and now it's moving towards water. Why don't you talk about that? <clears throat> well, uh, water is, in the U.N. something, I don't know, water was considered um, a universal right, but we didn't sign it. Apparently, we didn't sign that portion, but other countries rec- recognize it as a right. But we have places like Detroit where they right. cut off people's water these first of all they cut off their salaries by eliminating the jobs and and now they've cut off their water so it's obviously not a right in this country and in, and then you have these big corporations and big multimillionaire billionaire families buying up land all over the place that are sitting on big aquifers or big sources of water and in California there's we have one year of water left, apparently, in the reservoirs, and there's no backup plan. Uh, they they were arguing about these delta water tunnels, which would shift water from one area to another area, north to or south, north to south. But um, it was going to be 60 billion after you factor in interest, and they haven't even gotten started yet because of all the complaints. I mean, it's the same old water wars that have been going on for 100 years in this state. There are all kinds of movies about it. That one was um, Chinatown. China. Yeah, yeah, it was probably the most. Yeah. Um, 
And meanwhile, there are actually alternatives that they're not exploring, ways to get more water in the system, which reminds me kind of of our thing about money reform, ways to get more money in the system instead of fighting over insisting that we have to maintain the value of the currency, which means, which they interpret to mean maintain the amount of currency in the system so that we're all fighting over insufficient money. And the obvious solution is to put some more money out there, but they won't do it. Or they pretend that they've done it with quantitative easing and they say, see, we tried that and it didn't work, but you haven't tried it. It didn't get into the real economy. It's still just sitting there on bank balance sheets. Yeah. So in California, well, the, actually what prompted me to write that was that I learned about something called primary water where you can, um, there, a new research shows that there are several times as much water under the Earth's mantle as above it. And, of course, it's like 500 miles down, but it comes up through these crevices whenever there are earthquakes or um, volcanoes there's a lot of pressure down below, so any crevices in the rock will push the water up. So then the trick is to find those crevices, and they tend to actually be in rock. It's like getting water out of the desert or getting water out of rock, or what Libya did. Or, by the way, getting oil out of rock with the fracking, right? I mean, if they could do it with oil, I'm sure they could do it with water. Yeah, <laughs> it would be better for us, yeah. So, so those could those you could have wells across the state for under a billion dollars. You could um, have enough water to service the state. So that's like two percent of the cost of the del- Delta water tunnels. But for some reason, they don't pursue that sort of thing. Another possibility is desalinization, and of course, there are many different ways of conserving water. I think they are pushing those to some extent, but. Um, what you see more is this sort of war over water rights where you have people buying up the rights and it's obviously in the best interests of the big water companies or whoever owns these water rights to have water be in limited supply because then we can we'll be willing to pay four dollars a bottle in these plastic bottles right. to go out and pollute the ocean <laughs> right yeah uh, it's also this um you know this pervasive ideology um, which has really become very acute, I think, in the last you know ten or fifteen years, that all investment has to be done by the private sector, or we cannot do it. Can you imagine if John F. Kennedy in 1960 said, you know, we're going to send a man to the moon by the end of this decade, but by the way, it has to only be done by the private sector. The government is not allowed to help at all. We can't help. You know, we'd still be trying to get there. I mean, the, the, the private rocket industry right now is, is pretty much a dismal failure. Uh, but, I mean, it's ludicrous. And these are the investments where they can only really be uh, uh, sustained and achieved ultimately by, you know, a combination of, of state government support and the private sector. But we've precluded that from really uh, – working effectively just because we've taken the state and the government out of it. And that feeds right back into what you're saying. I think, in my opinion, it does, that the powerful interests don't want that to happen. They want to be able to extract it and to sell it, you know, uh, as they want. 
and the democratization of the resource of the water. Let's face it, the whole planet, we got, 70% of the planet is water. It really shouldn't be a problem when you think about it. But, you know, if it's, if it's designated to a certain small group who, can, who only have the right or the ability to do that, well, guess what? A lot of people are not going to have water. Yeah, and there actually is a lot of water on the planet. That, that I guess floods, I've read that floods are more of a problem than drought overall, but it's a matter of distribution and water rights, yeah. So, and the whole infrastructure issue, we could fund infrastructure with quantitative easing, or we could do it. I mean, my thing in California, if we're not going to get quantitative easing, we should have a state-owned bank where at least you could get it interest-free because you own the bank, so you get the interest back, just like the Fed rebates the interest to the federal government, so a state-owned bank would rebate the interest to the state. That's what happens in North Dakota. They get a real nice dividend every year from their bank. So it's a big moneymaker besides being in control of where the – or making sure that the credit goes to things that serve the public interest. Well, guess what? Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who happened to be a Republican, built the interstate highway system uh, with the government deficit spending to do that, okay? Uh, We fought wars. I mean, what if FDR, after, you know, December 7, 1941, says, hey, we've just been attacked, we got to fight this war, but, uh, you know, we got to make some cuts in spending to be able to do this. I mean, the funny thing is, or or the frustrating thing is, you know, we have a lot of history that shows we built this country with public money, you know, the government spending that money to make things happen. I mentioned the space program under Kennedy, the highway, interstate highways under Eisenhower, World War II, by the way, which if you look at the finances of that period, I mean, how we have such an outcry about the deficit now, which is ridiculously nothing is so stupid you know, we were at 35% of GDP uh, in 1943. That that would be like a, a deficit now of uh, three or four trillion, all right? So, I mean, nobody got bankrupted. Nobody got impoverished. As a matter of fact, we became prosperous, as incredibly prosperous as a nation. We grew an amazing uh, middle class that, that survived, you know, for 30 years after that. Um, and suddenly all those lessons are either lost or they've been somehow uh, misrepresented or, or turned around and made to look bad, uh, mislabeled, whatever the, the, the word is there. Um, that's the thing that's very frustrating. We have the ability to do these things. We have just allowed ideology to come in, a way, in the way. And, again, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic because, I, you know, after the crash – uh, in 2008, I really thought we'd see some change, but if anything, it's going back in the same direction in a more, um, you know, just in a more insidious way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've used it to argue that their banks are too big to fail to the point of um, bail-ins where we, the people, our deposits are going to rank second after they are derivatives in a bankruptcy. So, and the, I mean, derivatives, of course, are mostly the bankers um, betting with each other. So they're going to get their money out first because they are too big to fail, and their interests go first in front of 
ahead of the people's. So, yeah, it's a horrible system. I want to ask you, because I don't hear you writing too much about, I don't see you writing too much about this unless I've missed it, but but basically it's not just about uh, finance and big business. It's also about finance and big business and the security state, you know, the police state, which basically serves the interests now of uh, those entities. And, you know, we talk about how it has gotten more difficult to, um, you know, to remove that power structure, but the fact that they're kind of tied in now with law enforcement, the police state, the carceral state, I mean, the military, you know, it almost seems like now they're there to preserve the interests of the elites. Yeah. Well, that that would prevent any sort of violent revolution, so we obviously can't do a violent re- revolution anymore. But it seems to me that we can win, and we can't really win at the polls because they've got that sewed up too. But it seems to me that we can win by setting up our own banking system. I mean, just pull our money. It's our money. So pull it out of, not only pull your individual money out of Wall Street, but pull our state monies out of Wall Street and put it in our own banks, and then we don't need them anymore. So then they're not too big to fail. Right. Now, aside from North Dakota, do you see any other uh, places now in the country where this uh, we're starting to get movement in this area? Well, we have a lot of groups pushing for it in many areas of the country. There's uh, Washington State, and uh, right now we have an active group in New Mexico um, where the there's uh, the mayor of Santa Fe, New Mexico, is in favor, so he's pushing for a city-owned bank. Um, I'm still pushing in California, but you, you kind of have to do this. You can't be too public about it at first because... What you really need to do is build up a constituency. So you really have to go and talk to the, our natural allies are the local local banks because they're the ones that are going out of business because of the the new regulations and that the that the big banks have control over. But the trouble is they think that they're allied with Wall Street because they need to sell out to Wall Street if they if they can't make it. So so anyway, so we're, so a lot of things are going on behind the scenes, but you don't necessarily <clears throat> see it written about. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, we're almost out of time, but um, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I applaud your optimism. Maybe I should try to be a little bit more optimistic. <laughs> I just, uh, you know, when I look at things, it just makes me shake my head. I get very uh, upset and frustrated. But uh, we have to have a long-term view, and we have to keep uh, pushing and fighting on this, right? Yeah. I try to always end my articles with a solution because I do think that's what people are looking for. There's so much negative stuff out there that it is kind of overwhelming unless unless you wrap up with, but we, there is, you know, we can get out of this. We can. We can. We have to work together. We have to keep the message going, as frustrating as it is at times. But uh, I think that is the message. Keep the message going and try to, you know, expand our network of people who uh, hold the same beliefs. Uh, Anyway, Ellen, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It's been great talking to you. 
Okay, great talking to you, too. Thanks, Mike. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You, too. Bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.